The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I want to start the message this morning by asking you a simple question, but maybe it's not so simple. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? If someone were to come to you and just ask you that candidly, can you just summarize for me in a nutshell? What is this gospel that Christians talk about all the time? What would you say? What would you say? I I think the term gospel is familiar to almost anyone who has gone to church for any length of time. That word gospel literally means, as many of you know, good news. Good news. In Greek, it is the word euangelion, good combined with the word news. But what exactly, I'm asking here this morning, is the content of that good news that we say is found in the gospel? In other words, what is the story that the gospel is trying to tell? Well, I think many of you in this room also are probably familiar with the four spiritual laws. Uh, uh, Many of you may even have come to faith through these laws. Uh, It's an evangelistic track that was authored by this man in the 1950s uh, named Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And for many people, they find these four spiritual laws probably to be the best way to explain the gospel through this outline of the four spiritual laws. And the laws basically go something like this. God loves you and created you to know him personally. That's the first law. And then the second law is we are sinful and separated from God, so we cannot know him personally or experience that love. And then thirdly, it is Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience God's love. And then the fourth law is we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know God personally and experience his love. So for many people, many Christians today, they would look at this list and say, yeah, that's it. That's the gospel. It's a pretty good summary of what the gospel message is. Another way that we can describe the gospel as many people understand it today would look something like this. First it is that we all try to earn our salvation through our good deeds. And then secondly, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then thirdly, the good news is that Jesus died for our sins. And then lastly, if you only believe this and pray the sinner's prayer, then the free gift of eternal life can be yours today. And I think most of us in this room would look at the four spiritual laws and look at a list like this and actually have no problem with it and say, yeah, I mean, this is the stuff that I've been taught since I was a little kid growing up in the church in Sunday school. It's all pretty straightforward. And maybe some of you are getting a little nervous right now going, yeah, what's wrong with that? (laughs) Um, Listen, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with it per se. 
Okay? Um, I, I think we can, we can probably affirm almost all of these statements, although some of them would probably need some clarification based on what I'm about to say today. The problem is, though, is this. This isn't how the Bible itself presents the gospel to us. It's not, okay? There's really nowhere in the Bible you can find this exact framework when it talks about the gospel. One of the things that we can say about these modern presentations of the gospel is that often it puts the focus entirely on us, on our condition, our sin problem, our need for salvation, our need for God. But what I want to start off by saying is this. The gospel as it is presented in the Bible doesn't even mention us directly. Instead, it's a story that centers entirely around Jesus. Okay? Jesus himself explained the gospel in the following way. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news or believe in the gospel. In other words, For Jesus, the good news of the gospel was inseparable from the message of the kingdom of God that had come to the earth with his coming. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 affirms this. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Do you hear that? For Jesus to talk about the good news or to talk about the gospel was to talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And so for the Israelites, the kingdom of God was basically represented the hope that all the promises of God found in the Old Testament would finally be fulfilled and that God would rule his people and not just his people, but the whole world. That was what the kingdom of God meant to the Israelites. The rule of God over all his creation. And closely connected with this kingdom teaching was the promise of a Messiah. One who would be anointed from the family of King David himself, who would reign as king on God's behalf. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and proclaims to Israel that the day had finally come, the kingdom was at hand. That was the gospel. That was the good news. That's the heart of it. The kingdom is here because the king is here. The Messiah has come. It's interesting. During Jesus' earthly life, you can sort of think of his status as king as what today we would call a crown prince. Are you familiar with that term, crown prince? When you call somebody a crown prince, 
It means that you are heir to the throne, but you don't yet sit on the throne. It's like Prince Charles, who's been waiting for like 50 years to become king, but Queen Elizabeth just lives on and on and on, right? She's immortal, I think. She, she, is, she just will not pass on. Um, and so, in a way, you can say, in Jesus' life, he was the crown prince. So how did he then become king and sit on that throne? Well, what the gospel tells us is that Jesus became king and received his kingdom by dying on the cross and being raised back to life again and resurrection. And so after Jesus' death and resurrection, his disciples begin to preach what they call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in almost all of these early sermons that we find in the book of Acts, they contain these core elements. The first is that this Jesus preexisted with the Father. He was there from the start. That really shows that he was God, okay? Not just a mere mortal. And then secondly, it is that he took on human flesh, fulfilling God's promise to David of an heir that would come from his family line. And then the next one is that he would He would die on a Roman cross and would be buried for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then the next is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures and that he appeared to many eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us to his letter to the Corinthians that in one moment he appeared to 500 people all together at the same time so that there would be absolutely no doubt that he was raised from the dead. And the next, in all of these sermons, it is that he is seated at the right hand of God as Lord. And then the last part of the good news is that he will come again as judge. Now, I think the truth is these bullet points look familiar to most of you if you uh, have been a Christian for some time. But if I were to ask you, which one of these bullet points seems almost a little unnecessary or not as important as the others, which one would you pick? Which one seems almost a little secondary or unnecessary? I'm going to guess for many of you, you would probably pick the second to last one. And that is that he is seated at the right hand of God as Lord. Because in a way, all that seems to be saying is Jesus, who was the Son of God, after he died and rose again, just went back up to heaven to be with his Father, where he originally was. That sounds like that's all that it is saying. But what is interesting is this. That second to last point is actually the climax of these sermons. It's as if everything in the preaching of Paul and of Peter and all the other apostles leads to that climactic moment when they said, and he is enthroned on the throne at the right hand of God. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached to the crowd in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, verse 32 to 33, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. There's this heavy emphasis that he is now seated at the right hand of God. He sits on a throne as Lord, as Christ, 
as king. Jesus himself seemed to focus on this exaltation that was going to come after he died and rose again. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61 to 62, it says, but he remained silent and made no answer. This is when he's on trial, right before he's put to death. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? In other words, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the climax that Jesus himself points to is what this is all leading up to is that I shall be enthroned at the right hand of God. Now, here's the honest truth is all of these references to Jesus' enthronement and his exaltation after his resurrection had always confused me. I didn't really get it. And the reason why it confused me is because the Bible also says that he is God himself. Jesus is God. He is the son of God. How much higher a status can you get than son of God, right? So in a way, when it says, oh, and after Jesus' resurrection, he was exalted. I said, no, duh. I'd be like, why why does that need to happen? He is already exalted. He is as high as you can get. You can't get any higher than God. It's not like after his resurrection, he became more God. I mean, God is as high as you get, and yet the scriptures keep accentuating this fact that after the resurrection, Jesus was given a status that he didn't have before, that he was given a new exalted position. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 goes through this a bit. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Paul points out, Jesus, even before he became a man, was in the very essence God himself. He was God, and yet he says after his death and resurrection, the Father highly exalted him, as translated the ESV. The actual literal wording for that is God hyper-exalted Jesus, meaning Jesus was already exalted, and God exalted, exalted him, or super-exalted him, or mega-exalted him to a place of even higher status. And what all of this teaching seems to be pointing to is this simple fact, that after Jesus rose, the kingdom was here now, and the king sits on his throne. That's the gospel message in a nutshell. It doesn't start with us, and it's not about us. 
When you're talking about what is the good news that God came to bring, what God would say is, the good news is that my son gave up his life and died and rose again. And now I have placed him on the throne to rule over my creation as king. There is a king on the throne, and his name is Jesus. That would be the gospel according to the Bible. Matthew Bates writes this. The Son of God is now the enthroned and actively ruling Son of God, the Cosmic Lord. This new super-exalted status as Cosmic Lord is not peripheral to the good news about Jesus. It is at the very heart and center, the climax of the gospel. Jesus has been enthroned as the King. Jesus' reign is a non-negotiable portion of the good news. When the gospel is presented today by a preacher or teacher, most of the time this Jesus reigns portion of the gospel is either entirely absent or mentioned as an aside. The cross and resurrection get central billing. But Jesus' kingship is tucked away off stage. We need to recover Jesus' kingship as a central, non-negotiable constituent of the gospel. Jesus' reign as Lord of heaven and earth fundamentally determines the meaning of faith as allegiance in, revelation, in relation to salvation. That last sentence is really important because that's what I'm going to key in on for the rest of this message this morning. In other words, the core of the gospel message is the story how, of how Jesus defeated sin and death and became king over God's kingdom. In light of this understanding of the gospel, then, we are now having to ask the question, what is the invitation given to us as to how we're supposed to respond to it? What is God asking of us when we're presented with the gospel, with the good news? And one of the things that we can say is that the Bible centers our response around this key word, faith. Faith, right? It's about having faith. The problem is that faith is a difficult word. It's a difficult word because it can mean a lot of different things. A comparison I can make in the modern English is the word run. The word run. Now, there's a lot of ways we can use the word run in English, right? I can say, hey, I'm running to the store. Or I can say, I left my car running. Or I can say, I run a small business. Or I can say, uh, I have a run in my stockings. You know? And it's crazy, right? All of these words run mean something different. And the word faith is a little bit like that. It has kind of a wide range of meanings. And I think the most obvious answer, if I were to ask you, tell me a one-word definition of faith, what would you say? I think probably most of us would say something like, well, I think faith is belief. Faith is, in other words, believing that something is true. And that's actually a, a valid definition for the word faith. Okay? Um, some of us may nuance that word faith by adding a little bit to it of this idea of trust, right? Faith is trust. 
When I say I have faith in Jesus, I put my trust in Jesus. But that same word faith, which maybe some of you actually don't know, can also be translated as faithfulness or loyalty or allegiance. Okay? And what Matthew Bates argues is, I think this is where we've gotten wrong a lot of the passages in Scripture, that we've equated faith with belief when maybe what was intended was something closer to loyalty or allegiance or faithfulness. Let me give you one example of the confusion of this word faith. If you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 3, it says, what if some did not evidence faith in their lives, meaning they didn't display faith in their lives? Paul asks. And then he says, will their lack of faith nullify God's faith? Now, when you look at that, that's confusing, right? Because when you look at that third use of that word faith in this verse, it doesn't make sense if faith equals belief. Because it's weird thinking about God having faith. It'd be like saying, God, I really need you to trust this and believe it's true. (laughs) I don't think we ever say that to God, do we? Right? God does not require faith in that sense. Instead, probably the most accurate way to understand the word faith in this verse is to say it's more like faithfulness. What if some did not evidence faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's own faithfulness or loyalty to the promises he's given us in his word? Okay? And what we discover is when we look at this use of the word faith in the Bible, quite often, I think, an argument could be made that maybe what God intended was more like this last use of the word faithfulness or allegiance or loyalty. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 25, it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through the faith or what we could argue is the allegiance of or faithfulness of Jesus the Christ for all who, in turn, give faith or give allegiance. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in the Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood through his allegiance or loyalty or faithfulness. I know this may be confusing some of you. Let me try to see if I could explain it a bit. I said at the beginning of the message that the core of the gospel message is that Jesus sits enthroned as God's chosen one, the king. And the argument is this, that the proper response to the message that Jesus now sits enthroned as king is not to believe in a set of facts about this Jesus as we typically have thought of faith. But instead, the invitation is to pledge our allegiance to this king. 
as the ruler over us. He is my king. I pledge my loyalty to him. The argument that is being made here is that that is actually what we are called to when the gospel invites us to follow Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to the king who reigns. In other words, we can sum this all up like this. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus won the victory for us on the cross and is now enthroned as king. To be saved, we must pledge allegiance or faith to the king. And that is a very different perspective than this idea that to have faith in this Jesus means simply I believe a set of facts that are historical are true of him. But that may sadly require no change in my life at all. All I am doing is agreeing to a truth. Matthew Bates says this, I would argue that like rot in an apple, much of the malaise in contemporary Christianity stems from a rotten core. The gospel, salvation, and the Christian life have little to do with faith or belief as generally defined or understood. And this is the decay in the interior, so much so that it would be best if these words were abandoned with regard to discussions of salvation among Christians. The Greek word pistis, generally rendered faith or belief, as it pertains to Christian salvation, quite simply has little correlation with faith and belief as these words are generally understood and used in contemporary Christian culture, and much to do with allegiance. At the center of Christianity, properly understood, is not the human response of faith or belief, but rather the old-fashioned term fidelity. Fidelity. Pledge your fidelity to the king enthroned. Now, Bates is making a pretty strong statement here about the state of the church. But he's not alone in the sentiment of saying that somehow in this distorted view of faith that we've come to, what it has resulted in is a proclamation of the gospel that just is asking many people to just agree to a set of historical facts and not understanding that the invitation of the gospel is nothing short of an entirely surrendered life to the leadership of Christ. The clear gospel message is this. Jesus is king. Will you submit your loyalty to him? and surrender your life to him and the authority that he would have over you. Now, there's some implications of this. The first is this. To pledge allegiance to Jesus is to publicly declare him as our Lord and King. That's one of the first implications of this. To pledge allegiance to Jesus is to publicly declare him as Lord and King. Now, some, most of you, if you've been at ICC for any amount of time, know the history of my uh, my wife and I, the, these are, I guess these slides are kind of messed up. Oh, no, it's there. Okay, yeah. Actually, this is college, so it's, I couldn't find a good high school picture. So anyway, Betty and I were dating since high school, and uh, I think some of you already know the story, but um, I think it was when I was a senior in high school. I, 
I got this crazy idea of trying to show her how much I loved her and how I could prove my loyalty to her. And so I did something really dumb. And I took some um, masking tape. And as some of you may know, I outlined SL plus BL on my chest, on my, on my stomach. And then I suntanned myself <laughs> for like three hours to burn that image on my body. And uh, sure, sure enough, when I removed the masking tape, there it was in glorious, <laughs> like a billboard. Steve Lee loves Betty Lee, you know? Um, and as a high school student, I, I didn't think through the implications of this, you know? And soon, word got around that I had done this. And everyone wanted to see my stomach, you know? <laughs> everyone in youth group wanted to see my stomach. And then I didn't realize, I thought it would just last like a week. But summer vacation ended and I had to go back to school. And uh, I, I still remember, uh, I, I had to go in the locker room <laughs> at school and take off my shirt. <laughs> and all my high school friends are going to now see this thing. And so I'm trying to figure out any way in the locker room to like hide my stomach that I can. But the, the truth was, I couldn't get away from this thing, you know? I was branded. You know, I was marked with this declaration of love for my girlfriend that um, I just couldn't get away from, no matter what I tried. Okay? Um, I, <laughs> when we pledge allegiance to Jesus, I think there is something of that spirit captured there. In Romans chapter 10, verse 8 to 10, it says this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith or allegiance that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. You see, Paul is pointing to the public nature of claiming allegiance to Jesus. He says, yes, believing in our hearts that these facts are true is part of it. But he says there's a second part of it, which is the public proclamation of that allegiance with your mouth. And that also is an important part of salvation. And note what that specific declaration with your mouth is. It is that Jesus is Lord. He is my king. He is the one that rules my life and has control over me. And under his leadership do I follow. You know, I, 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 I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, but I have grown up in the church and heard so many altar calls, especially in my youth group days, when the preacher would give an altar call like that, saying, it's all dark here so no one can see anyone. And everyone's heads are bowed. Everyone's eyes are closed, you know. And you're trying to make sure that no one sees. And so, it's like we're in a black, black closet. Don't worry. And if you want to follow Jesus, would you just stand up? And if you cannot stand up, just raise a finger. You know? <laughs> I want to follow Jesus. <laughs> so you're looking around, scanning the room. Listen, I, I understand. 
It's not, it's not always easy, but I, I think there's something about that, that that runs counter to the call of the gospel in scriptures that says, listen, it isn't easy to be identified with this Jesus, but pledge your allegiance and declare whom you follow. And don't be ashamed of whom you follow. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. I think that's why baptism is so important, a part of salvation. Baptism is a very public declaration. You don't get baptized in your bathtub with your family members. The idea is show the world. Show the world. Testify who you follow, who you pledge allegiance to. To pledge allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King also means that we will display our loyalty through obedience. Romans chapter 1 Verse 1 through 6, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. That's an interesting thing right there. Is that, you know, the hyper-exalted in Philippians 2? This is Paul's way of describing it here in Romans is the new title that Jesus was given is the son of God in power, okay? According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, our our King, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Or another way you could say it is the obedience of allegiance for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay? So Paul points out that as an apostle, he has been commissioned by Jesus to bring about what he calls the obedience of faith. Now that phrase, if you think of faith as simply belief as opposed to works, is confusing, isn't it? What does he mean, the obedience of faith? But if you think of it as allegiance, it makes all the sense in the world. To bring about obedience in keeping with the allegiance that we pledge to Jesus. Jesus himself made it clear that his disciples would be distinguished by their obedience. Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or Messiah, Messiah, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Paul is known as the apostle of grace, and rightly so, because all his letters are filled with the message that it is by grace that we are saved. And yet, I want you to note what he himself, this apostle of grace, said about our judgment in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 6 to 8, it says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is confusing, isn't it? What Paul, the apostle of grace, is saying is we are going to be judged by our works. Now, what does he mean by that? Is he contradicting himself when he says we are saved by grace? Not at all. We are saved by grace. None of us can come to God apart from his enabling us to do so. It is by grace that we have a changed heart that can come to him. But in the grace of the work of God in us, the question is, what is it exactly that we are doing as an expression of faith? And it is not simply agreeing to a set of historical facts that this Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and then he died on a Roman cross and rose again from the dead and then went back up to heaven. Through that grace that is at work in us, what we do is pledge allegiance to the king. And out of that allegiance, let a life of obedience flow that is dependent on the work of God continually in our lives to enable us to do so. I'm going to close with this and we'll wrap up here. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 to 14 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That I think is a great summary of the gospel story. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And what salvation in essence means is the transference, transference from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in order for us to live in that kingdom, it means that we declare Jesus as king. Let's pray. Um, over the course of this Lent, as I preach a couple more messages, I, I realize maybe your head is spinning and you're trying to figure out put, how to put everything I'm teaching right now into all the categories you've learned since Sunday school about what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And I apologize if it does feel a little bit like you've been thrown into the deep end of the pool. But let me see if I can just try to summarize this in a way that will make sense to us. Okay? There is this sort of teaching that's going on in much of the Christianity today that out of this misguided view of the word faith as simply belief in a truth which it can mean in some instances has basically led us to this sort of uh, canned gospel presentation that basically says um, this is what happened 2,000 years ago and if you want to become a Christian then you need to agree to these facts and if you agree with them and say this prayer with me, then you will be saved. And when we really look carefully at the Bible itself, it seems to offer us a rather different picture of the gospel, and it is this. That Jesus, who existed before the foundations of this world, was God. But he took on flesh and blood so that he could die and was buried 
And three days later, he rose again and appeared to many in his resurrected state to show he was God. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, enthroned as king, super exalted. And he will come one day as king to judge this world. And what he asks of us is pledge your allegiance to the king. Give up leadership over your own life and surrender that authority to me. And in doing so, in coming under my leadership, Jesus says, you will know eternal life. And I can give you a life that you could never have by your own power. This doesn't mean that we earn our way to heaven through our good works. It doesn't. It it doesn't mean that somehow we can gain God's approval by doing good works. It doesn't. But it does mean that when we pledge our allegiance to this Jesus, by the work of God in us through his grace, we cannot remain the same people that we were. There will be the fruit of obedience that will naturally flow out of that allegiance. And that is why God will judge us by our works because those works will be an expression of faith in him, of loyalty to him and in the work of God's leadership over us. So I simply want to ask you that this morning. How do you know Jesus? Do you know him in that way? Because I got to speak very honestly with you. In my years of doing pastoral ministry, even here at ICC, I think what I really worry about is a lot of people who would claim to be Christians And yet, when it really comes to that question of who is leading your life, I think the honest truth would have to be, it's not Jesus, it's you. You pretty much make all the decisions based on your own wisdom and out of the things that you want out of life. And God is sidelined in that whole picture. And so maybe you need to be pressed this morning to ask, what does it really mean when I say that I follow Jesus and that I have faith in him? If it's just believing in the fact of Jesus, then maybe Jesus would say, that's not what it means to have faith in me. Have you pledged your loyalty, your allegiance to him, and the total surrender of a life given to him? Have you publicly declared that you are not ashamed of him, but that he is your king, he is your Lord? And out of that, does the obedience of a life following him flow to give testimony the work that he has done in you. Can I just invite you to just pray for a couple minutes here and just wrestle with that and say um, to the Lord God, um, you know, maybe the prayer this morning is simply this, is I want your leadership over me. I want you to reign in my life as king. I don't just want to believe in the historical Jesus as a fact of history. I want to know the life of total surrender. So God, grant me that faith to do so this day. Just pray for a few minutes, will you? And the worship team will come to lead us in a time of response.